Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, a writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. In 2016, a dramatic photo of a growing crack, or rift as the scientists call it, advancing across the Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica, alerted the world to the pending birth of what will be one of the largest icebergs ever recorded. An iceberg the size of the state of Delaware. Scientists are wondering if we're about to witness the partial or total disintegration of the ice shelf itself, a spectacular fate visited upon its more northerly neighbours, the Larsen A and B ice shelves, in 1995 and 2002 respectively. This week in our launch episode, we go straight to the expert, Professor Adrian Luckman of Swansea University in Wales. He's been monitoring the growth of the crack or rift across the Larsen C ice shelf. At the moment, at the time of this interview, there's only a 13 kilometre ice bridge connecting the future 5,000 square kilometre iceberg to the ice shelf itself. Adrian Luckman, welcome to the Antarctic Report. Thank you. Tell us what it is that you do. Uh, yes, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a glaciologist here at uh, Swansea University in Wales in the UK, and I specialise in satellite remote sensing of ice sheets, ice shelves and glaciers. I'm also an educator at the university and I teach glaciology and geographic information systems. You are part of Project MIDAS. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Well, MIDAS is a UK Natural Environment Research Council funded research project. Uh, we were funded from 2014 to earlier this year to study specifically the Larsen Sea ice shelf. Okay, so why that focus on Larsen C? Why, why did people feel there was a need to have a look at Larsen C? Well, uh, as you're probably aware, there's been a number of uh, ice shelf losses on the Antarctic Peninsula, most notably Larsen A and Larsen B. Uh, the obvious question is what's going to happen to Larsen C? Larsen C is a lot bigger than the others. Uh, it's a little bit further south, so it's a little bit of colder environment. Uh, but we know that the Antarctic Peninsula is one of the fastest warming places on Earth, so it's natural that we want to keep a close eye on that ice shelf because of its vulnerability where it is on the Antarctic Peninsula. Very good. And just very quickly, I know, I know it's um, been well documented, but just in a couple of sentences, just remind us what happened to Larsen A and Larsen B, and, and uh, the, the, the two different two different moments, what years that, they, that happened. Yeah, well, Larsen A... It wasn't the first uh, ice shelf to start disintegrating, but it it did do so in a a very spectacular way in 1995. It was losing area um, over some years, and then very rapidly, over a matter of a few weeks, the whole thing disintegrated into fragments. And that was in 1995. Uh, At the same time, uh, Larsen B, a little bit further south, a little bit bigger, was also losing area, gradually carving away from 1995, uh, down to the point at, at uh, 2002, seven years later, 
when in a very similar way that ice shelf collapsed in a spectacular fashion as well. Okay, so so looking back on on those two that 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 phenomenon, I guess, how unique were they in terms of contemporary science and recorded science? Was that the first time we had seen something like that? At that, yeah, at, totally, at, at, at that scale, I guess. Yes, it was totally unexpected the, the, the way that these ice shelves collapsed. I mean, you would expect uh, most places on Earth have been warming over many thousands of years, so you expect ice to recede gradually. Uh, and uh, that was what we were seeing on the Antarctic Peninsula. Small ice shelves were being lost, and that was no real big surprise. But these two ice shelves reached some kind of critical point where essentially they just lost all their integrity and, and fell apart in, in very sudden events. So it was uh, highly unusual to see that for Larson C, Larson A, I beg your pardon, and then Larson B to follow only seven years later uh, was quite unusual. Okay. So let's, I guess, I don't want to labour the point, but does Larson B just, uh, I, I remember that there's, there's photographs of the top, isn't there, and there you can see some surface water on the top. There's sort of the, the, those last few months when it sort of spectacularly disintegrated what can you just run us very quickly through what the processes were that that led to that uh, final disintegration of Larson B yeah well I would say that it's not not a completely uh, shut case on on how this ice shelf disintegrated but there's a there's a lot of evidence that the melt ponds on the surface of the ice shelf uh, played a role in that because there's a there's a, a theoretical consideration that the uh, the pressure involved in, in those in that water on the surface, if it gets into surface crevasses, then the pressure at the tip uh, at the bottom of that crevasse can be quite significant. And that can cause this hydrofracturing through the whole ice shelf and help to blow the whole thing apart. So it is thought that those um, those ponds on, on the surface of Larson B played a significant role in driving the crevasses through there, driving the fractures through and allowing this to, to disintegrate. And in fact, that's exactly the point at which we started looking at Larson C for the Midas project. We, we uh, had a proposal focusing on the role of surface melt and ponding uh, that we're actually starting to see now on Larson C and what effect that might be having on Larson C at the moment. Okay. And I guess, too, when we look at Greenland, correct me if I'm wrong, there's the surface water each season that seems to be getting greater and greater. Is that correct? Yes, I believe it is. I'm not an expert on ponds on Greenland, but um, I suppose we have become aware of them over the last 10 or so years. And because the climate there is warming very rapidly as well, it would be expected that we're seeing these appearing earlier, uh, perhaps being a bit larger, uh, maybe staying a little bit later in the season. So it's a, it's a, a feature of ice there as well. But I would say the ponds on Greenland do work in a different way. That, that ice is grounded uh, it's not flat. The ice in, in the Antarctic on the ice shelves is very, very flat. Um, it's it's already floating on the ocean. So it, the role of these ponds is very different between uh, the two continents. Okay, right. So let's uh, let's let's get to Larsen C. Can you give us a little bit? Can you, you, you tell us about the dimensions? How significant is the ice shelf? Its size? Well, Larsen C, I think, is the third or fourth largest ice shelf in Antarctica. It has an area of uh, 50,000 square kilometres. Uh, if I want to put that in terms of the size of Wales, it's about two and a half times the size of Wales. 
Uh, perhaps that's not palatable to your audience, but it, it seems to be that, that Wales is, is generally used as a as a measure of area. Sure. So it is a very big uh, ice shelf. Okay. So uh, let's get to the crack, which is, uh, I guess, uh, what has really attracted world attention. Can you just um, tell us, uh, Adrian, when was that uh, crack first detected? Okay, well, as I said, for the Midas project, we, we were really looking at something very different. We were looking at surface melt and ponding. We weren't expecting to start looking at rifts uh, such as this one. Uh, this rift has actually been in the ice shelf for as long as we have got images of it. It was, it was there, mm -hmm. and it was there as a series of rifts coming in from, from the south that appeared to offer no risk to the ice shelf because uh, they all seem to halt in a particular part of the ice shelf uh, what's known as a suture zone where the ice is a little bit softer and these rifts were unable to penetrate through that uh, that softer ice uh, which is why in late in 2014 my colleague Daniela Janssen from the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany she uh, was collaborating on our project and she spotted that the, one of these many rifts had punched through this softer ice into ice that's colder thicker uh, with less water content and therefore much more uh, liable to fracture further. So it was, it was late 2014 when she spotted that happen and she realized the implications of that. Uh, and so we were kind of obliged, having been funded to look at the stability of Larsen Sea Ice Shelf, to start monitoring this rift as well. Okay. The, the early part of the crack had actually probably been there for, for some time, but was in many ways quite stable, as it were. It wasn't really increasing, and well, not noticeably so until about 2014, yeah? That's right. Okay. It's now 2017. How has that crack grown and evolved and at what rate? Well, um, it's taken uh, quite a few steps in its, in its progress. Um, I forget how many. I'm just, just grabbing myself a, a figure here to try and remind myself how many steps we've seen in its, in its development. There's been, since 2014, I, I would say three or four major advances of that rift. Um, and it became rapidly clear in 2015 that this was really starting to look much more like an incipient carving event than simply a rift that was that was uh, entering the ice shelf. Right. And now, incidentally, Adrian, does the crack grow at a particular time of year? Like, is it a spring or summer event? Or has, has there been any pattern to to the extension of that grow, of the crack? We're investigating what causes this rift to extend, but I would say at the moment we're pretty sure it's, it's a fairly random event. I mean, fracturing in ice is a very difficult thing to predict. And what happens is that the, the rift advances between these soft zones called suture zones. When it enters the hard, thick glacier ice, it can propagate very quickly. And then when it comes to a point of suture zone ice, uh, which is warmer, softer, uh, and with a slightly greater water content, then that's more uh, resistant to fracture and the, and the rift stops advancing. So we can see exactly the points at which it's advancing between, but what causes it to jump through uh, is, is not really known. It could simply be that it's just taking its time getting through the softer zones, and then when it's ready, it can move on. It's quite likely that external factors do play a part in the, the, the propagation of the rift. For instance, we've got tidal forces there. We've got uh, ocean swells, deep ocean swells that, that can um, 
move the ice shelf in a certain way and encourage this rift to progress. Yeah. What, what's the title? Any idea what the title range is at that part of the Antarctic coast? Is it significant? Is it... Uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a, a half a metre to a metre, something yeah. like that. Okay, all right. Do they have big storms in that part of the world? I guess they do, don't they? And do, that, would, that would create big swells that could sweep into the coast where the shelf is? Yes, that's right. And, uh, and I know some scientists who believe that that played a significant role in the disintegration of Larsen B ice shelf. So, you know, it's a, it's a big open ocean there covered in sea ice, but still a, a long reach where big ocean swells can hit the ice shelf. And uh, it would be unusual if, if that didn't play a, a small, at least a small role in this rift we saw some dramatic photos i have to say of the rift um, video as well the rift um, at its widest point at the southern end now how wide would the rift at that where, where it began yeah well uh, it's difficult to tell because uh, even on the earliest images we have of this rift it was already open at its at its seaward end so it was already hundreds of meters wide it's, it's now a couple of kilometers wide uh, maybe it's better to look at, a, at the point at which the rift broke through this first suture zone where it first showed behavior different to its uh, the ones either side of it and started becoming a risk to the ice shelf. At that point, um, we started measuring it uh, and it was about 50 meters wide. Uh, and at the same point uh, along the rift, we're now measuring 550, 580 meters wide, something right. like that. Is the height quite consistent or does that vary along the length of the rift? terms of uh, i guess the density of the ice shelf well that's that's purely a, a function of the thickness of the ice shelf which is around about 200 to 300 meters thick so we would expect that 10 percent of that ice is is visible above the water line so anything between 20 to 30 meters uh, the rift depth until you get to the uh, the water that's filling the gap between but of course that water itself is also covered in ice uh, it's a mixture of ice that's carved in from the, the sharp edges of the rift from either side and also grown there as sea ice uh, and snowfall blown into it. It's a big mixture that we call uh, melange. Right. Now, how, how are we monitoring, monitoring the progress of the rift? Uh, it's all satellite, no doubt. Could you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, um, I'm sure you're aware uh, that... Optical data, data using the sun's light to form an image, you know, typical camera images is available. And we get, there's a, there's a couple of high resolution satellites out there we can use to monitor this rift tip. And, and some of the positions of the rift tip have been monitored in, in that way. Uh, the problem really is that uh, it's twofold in that the Larsen C is actually a very cloudy place. So we rarely get a clear view of the rift, particularly the bit that we want to see, the rift tip. Mm -hmm. in these high resolution images of course the, the at the tip end this thing's only meters across maybe centimeters across at its uh, at its furthest uh, reach yeah so um although you know we can look at the rift over long time periods with these occasional glimpses through the clouds that's obviously not good enough to monitor it fortunately of course uh, these days um remote sensing has synthetic aperture radar satellites satellite instruments working in the microwave part of the spectrum which uh, sees through the clouds so we have the you know ability to get an image whenever the satellite is programmed to get one and in addition because it's an active instrument it's beaming microwaves down to the ice surface down to the earth's surface uh, and it it does that 
day or night, uh, and even through the, uh, the Antarctic winter, the, the polar nights. So we can get regularly get images whenever uh, the providers of the images, in this, in this case it's the European Space Agency, whenever they program the satellite to get one. The Larsen C ice shelf straddles the Antarctic Circle, 66 degrees south. So at that latitude in the middle of the southern winter, there would be periods of almost 24-7 darkness. Um, I'm not sure what you would call it 24 hours of darkness, but certainly there's not enough light there at the moment. In fact, only in the last week uh, has the one of the satellite instruments we've been using to monitor this, uh, the, the NASA MODIS instrument, they've, they've stopped acquiring data from here because it's not light enough. And that's just happened in the last week. So there's two or three months of non-availability of uh, normal optical data where we have to rely on these these radar instruments. I guess we get to how long's a piece of string sort of questions now. I'm, I'm sure you must get um, tired of having to answer them, Adrian. Uh, dare I say it, what, what what's the current prognostication about you know when when it will complete completely break through? Well, the interesting thing is you know you, you, people might expect that this is a, a related to the, the air temperature and the ocean temperature and that we would expect this thing to break through in the in the Antarctic summer rather than winter. It's not like that at all. What we're seeing when we measure the width of the rift at the point at which it broke through that first suture zone is that this been, has been continuously widening at a rate of um, one or two meters every uh, every day. Um, for, for the period we've been looking at it, it's, a, it's consistently opening. And in fact, the rate of opening at that point is, is kind of behaving exponentially. It's getting gradually faster and faster. And if you look at the rift tip itself, that's working in a, in a similar way. The, uh, the rate at which that's progressed, uh, it, it's been progressing since you know, 2010, 2011, very, very slowly. And every year that, that tip has progressed faster and faster and faster. So we're coming to the point at which it's inevitable this thing will carve. Um, we're expecting it sometime soon, but still, fracturing an ice is unpredictable. We don't know enough about the soft suture zone in which the rift tip is currently residing to, to be able to predict exactly when it's going to happen. Uh, so I can't say when. I just know that it's going to happen sometime in the in the near future. Could it could have happened already? Yeah, that's possible, last, isn't it? It is possible. It, it may is, have already happened. It's possible. Yeah, the, the last image I saw was a couple of days ago, maybe three days ago. The last uh, radar image. Uh, I've been. I, I check these every day, and there hasn't been one since then. So it could have gone. It could be next week. It, it could hang on there for another few months. I, I really can't tell. Now remind me the the that ice bridge or the thread, whatever we want to call it, that's that's connecting this future iceberg to the main shelf. How it's it was about twenty or nineteen kilometers. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that is that the current um, uh, width of, of the that thread? Yes. Okay. So if that, you mm. if if you measure the the distance between. The current rift tip and the ice edge, it's about 20 kilometres. Okay, all right. So about, a, do you say a metre a day, uh, approximately, uh, that's the rift is growing, yeah? That, that's that's the rift width is growing a oh, metre okay. or two a day. The tip is so sporadic, you can't really say it's... it's um, when, it, when it advances through the cold, thick ice, 
it can be going anything up to a, at about a fifth of the speed of sound in uh, speed of, of sound in ice, um, which which is you know hundreds to thousands of meters per second. Yeah. Uh, when it's going through the softer ice, uh, it's only advancing sort of meters per day. So uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's a very difficult thing to predict because of these numbers. As, as that ice thread that uh, connects the, uh, the the future iceberg with the main shelf, as that gets smaller and smaller, presumably there's some sort of force of physics uh, happening here where the, it's, it comes under more and more stress with this massive future iceberg. Uh, is that the case? Is there some sort of is some sort of um, increasing force on that th- uh, stress on the, on the, on that bridge of ice? Yeah, naturally, it's, it's acting as a lever. And I think that's partly the reason that we see an exponential growth in this thing, that for every extra kilometre you put on the, the rift length, then there's an extra momentum of this, this berg pushing that rift forward and opening the whole thing. Um, we've got other theories as to how pressure of ice within the rift, you know, ice that falls in, of course, no ice is going to come out of that rift. Ice that's floating on the ocean, it can only fall in. So that's probably part of the pressure that's driving it it apart. Okay. All right. So we're at, at some stage, presumably this year, we're going to end up with a fairly large, large iceberg. How significant, in terms of the, the recorded, um, you know, the, the, re- the recorded uh, icebergs that we have, where does this stand? Top what? Top 20? Top 5? How big is it? Will it be? It's, it's certainly a top 10. I mean, we've only been measuring the size of icebergs for a few decades. Yeah, so uh, sure. in, in, the, in all of history, it's who can tell sure but um there, there are good records of icebergs because they are monitored very closely because of their, their they do uh, potentially form a, a hazard to shipping and this is definitely in the top 10 that the biggest ever recorded uh is about two and a half times the size of this one but that was absolutely exceptional and that was right back in in the year 2000 so there's only a few recorded ones that are roughly this size it's, right. it's pretty significant and uh, it will it will get uh, there, there's a naming convention for large icebergs, right? So what can you t- tell us a bit about that? Well, if you take the the whole of the Antarctic continent in uh, four quadrants, uh, A, B, C, D, between zero and ninety degrees west longitude, that's the A quadrant, and icebergs are named by a, a U.S. agency. Uh, according to that quadrant, so this will be an A iceberg, okay. uh, and they're currently up to the the high 60s. So this would be something like an A65, 66, something like that, depending on what happens elsewhere. Um, and uh, if it then breaks into pieces, then they'll they'll have suffix letters put on there, so A66B, A67C, etc., etc., depending on how many fragments and uh, and what number this one is actually given. If you think about it, this this ice shelf. Uh, it's two to six hundred meters thick, but it's hundreds of kilometers across. It's mm. um, if you think about maybe five pieces of A4 paper stacked on top of each other. That's the kind of thickness to uh, length ratio of this thing. So it's it's actually quite thin if you think about it, and it's highly likely that this this fraction of it, it's ten percent of the ice shelf, is going to break away. Highly likely that that will break into pieces. So. We're not likely to see one big iceberg sailing the seas. It's, it's probably going to rapidly break into into pieces uh, as it moves away. In terms of the ocean currents, how uh, how f- how far north will some of this ice f- float? 
Um, it's a good question. Um, again, because icebergs are monitored quite closely, there's a, there's a few examples of icebergs that do exit this part of the Weddell Sea and make their way up to maybe the southern tip of, of uh, uh, South America, as far as that. I think those are quite rare because normally icebergs will break up before they get there, but some of them do make it up, up that far. Okay. And meanwhile, back at Larsen C, you know, the, the, the shelf will lose approximately, what, did you say 10%? Is that how, that's how significant? That's right. Right. Yes. So what sort of impact does the, that loss have on the rest of the shelf? And, and, yeah, tell us a bit about that. Well, opinions divided about this. Um, what some people believe is that the ice that's being removed is what we might call passive ice. It doesn't really form any function on the on the ice shelf in holding the remainder of the ice shelf back. That we can carve it away with impunity, and that they won't affect the velocities of the ice or or, or anything like that. So there's a school of thought that says a oh, big deal. It's a big event. It'll change the landscape, but it's not going to have a big effect on the ice shelf. Uh, we take a slightly different view in that if we look at the, the stresses in the ice shelf, then at the moment the stresses uh, at, the, at the very outer edge of the ice shelf are working in such a way that they, they're working along the existing cracks in, in, the, in the shelf. You expect cracks to form a cross flow uh, parallel to the grounding line and parallel to the, uh, to the ice front. And the stresses are acting along those rather than acting to open them up. But once you go behind the current uh, incipient iceberg, then the stresses in the ice shelf that are currently there are actually acting to open the ice shelf cracks further. So any any existing uh, weaknesses in the ice shelf will tend to be pulled apart there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're left with more vulnerable ice open to the ocean, uh, 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 vulnerable to the open ocean when this iceberg carves away. It will be different. It, it might well adapt to that situation, but we would say that 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 part of the ice shelf will be more vulnerable. And this is exactly what we saw in Larsen B ice shelf in 1995. Mm-hmm. It carved a large section, and then over the following seven years, between 95 and 2002, because the stresses were acting to open existing cracks and existing weaknesses, then it gradually carved away until it got to this point in 19, in 2002 when it just completely disintegrates, disintegrated. And there's a risk that the same thing might happen to last and see. And, and incidentally, the, 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 the glaciers, so, so back going, going all the way back to the continent, as it were, the glaciers that are on bedrock that were feeding, creating these ice shelves. Um, what's happened uh, to the, the coast where Larsen A and Larsen B were? Has, there, has it changed the behaviour of the glaciers on the land? Yes, it has. Um, at, at, at the time, that was seen to be a bit of a surprise. Um, in retrospect, it, it was obvious that these these ice shelves they buttress those glaciers. You know, you've got a, you know, hundreds of meters of thickness of ice. You suddenly remove it, and of course, the driving stresses of the glaciers can make them flow faster. And that's exactly what we saw for Larsen A uh, and Larsen B. We, we we saw you know a factor of several fold increase in the flow of these glaciers. And even 15 years later, they're still flowing faster than they were before when the ice shelf was there. So there's a, a clear effect to the loss of these ice shelves. Ice shelves are extremely important, not just here in the Antarctic Peninsula, but around the whole of the Antarctic continent, in buttressing the ice on land, holding that ice back. So they, they form an essential function. Uh, and that's what we've seen very clearly in the A and B case, 
and it's what we might expect to see in last sea as well if it were to disintegrate sure and is there any consensus uh, at all among scientists adrian um as to whether anthropogenic climate change has had uh, some sort of partial connection with the disintegration of A, B, and what's happening to Larsen C? I think it's uh, well established and, and widely believed that uh, climate warming in general over hundreds, thousands of years led to the gradual retreat of ice shelves. And of course, that will only have been exacerbated by man-made climate warming, because what we see on the Antarctic Peninsula is a place where, where the, the air temperatures are rising faster than almost anywhere else on the planet. So it would be inconceivable that that didn't have an accelerating effect on uh, this disintegration of, of ice shelves in general on the Antarctic Peninsula. And we see this, this limit of viability of ice shelves moving, moving further and further south. In the case of Larsen C, this is uh, uh, the, the, the point at which this carves the, the rift itself. We can't say that that's been caused by climate change. It's, it's a rift that's been there for decades. It might just be that it was always going to go. But I would say that it's, it's uh, likely that the climate warming will have, will have helped that. It's certainly going to have hindered it anyway. Right. And so um, after the carving event, which is going to happen sometime, uh, what, what pro- project Midas continues? You, you obviously continue to ha- keep a close eye on Larsen C? We will, of course. Um, uh, naturally, projects come to an end of their funding. Uh, our funding, in fact, ended in, in March, but we still have a team of us um, funded in, in other ways, working very closely on this. We will be keeping a very close eye on it, and we, we have other funding applications in to continue our work on Larsen C. Very good. You've you've been to Antarctica? Yes, I've been uh, I've been a couple of times, uh, six or seven years ago, and a couple of years ago, where the Midas project we went there to uh, to drill into the ice shelf to look at the effect of these ponds uh, and the warming and the melting on the ice shelf itself. And uh, is, do you think you'll be there soon? <laughs> I'd love to go back. We don't have any funding at the moment, but uh, we're always applying. Uh, and consider field work being an essential part of the the research we're doing. Great. All right, Adrian. Look, thank you very much for uh, uh, for that. That was extremely interesting, and um, we will c- keep a close eye on that rift. You're very welcome. That was Professor Adrian Luckman of Swansea University in Wales. If you'd like to know more about the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf and Project Midas, check out the episode notes on AntarcticReport.com where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, email us at info at antarcticreport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time.